0: For those who don't know me, I'm Mike Tyndall. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Church, and I'll be reading God's Word and preaching. If you've got your Bible there, please turn up to Philippians chapter 3. We're in a series on this wonderful letter in the New Testament called Philippians. And we'll read the first 11 verses of chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. If anyone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from god on the basis of faith i want to know christ yes to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead this is the word of god let's pray shall we heavenly father in your son jesus christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds now by your Holy Spirit. And please grant us the reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth. Through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, some years ago I attended a Bible study group at a house in London and the family, uh, home, family whose home it was had two large dogs who were frankly completely out of control. They tended to be uh, locked up in the conservatory, which was on the back of the room where we met, but they could, they could still see us. So they would stand there at the glass doors staring at the group and dribbling. And then occasionally something would set them off and they would begin charging around the conservatory and howling, completely disrupting whatever was going on in the group. And after several weeks of this, the leader began to study and said, please, would you turn in your Bibles to Philippians 3 verse 2? Would somebody read that for us? And the person read out, watch out for those dogs. And it was an unforgettable moment. And it's an interesting moment in the letter to the Philippians, the tone Of Paul's writing seems to change suddenly. This letter has been full of joy so far, and it still is, but now Paul begins to give a very serious warning. And as he does so, his mind is prompted to think about what he and other Christians have been given by Jesus Christ. And so he writes one of the most glorious passages about what it means to be a Christian. I want us to consider this amazing passage today under two. Headings. Firstly, rejoice and watch out. And secondly, consider the great exchange. Rejoice and watch out and consider the great exchange. So firstly, rejoice and watch out. Our passage, chapter three here, begins with these words. uh, Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And joy, gladness is the great theme of this letter. You'll remember, as we've been working through it, over the last few weeks, chapter 1, verse 4, he says, When I think of you, I always pray with joy. 1, verse 18, he says, People are preaching with bad motives, but I don't care, because as long as Christ is preached, I rejoice. Verse 25 of chapter 1, I will continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. In other words, he wants to, his ministry to the people, not just to help them grow as Christians, but to help them grow in joy. Chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by being unified with one another. Verses 17 and 18, I'm re- glad and I'm glad and rejoice with you and you with me when I see your growth as believers. And 2.29, he tells them to welcome back Epaphroditus with great joy. There you have it. It's this wonderful th- theme. It's a thread, a golden thread that runs through the entire letter. And he's going to come back to it in chapter 4. And here, so what we've learned really is that Christian joy is both horizontal and vertical it's horizontal in the sense that we gain joy we get joy from other believers from seeing them grow from receiving their encouragement from the unity that we enjoy with them even though we're from very different backgrounds that is a thing of joy that we should never get tired of but joy is also vertical and the vertical axis is the new relationship that we as sinful people can now enjoy with the living holy god And the the sheer gift that he's given to us of grace. And that too is joyful. Joy is the birthright of every Christian. It's part of our inheritance. It's a gift from God. It's part of the fruit of the spirit. A joyless Christian is a contradiction in terms. Even if the person is experiencing sorrow upon sorrow, there can still be a deep note of joy. Rejoice in the Lord. But now there seems to be an abu- abrupt gear change as when a learner driver crunches through the gears and it's sort of the car lurches into another, another gear. Because no sooner has he said, rejoice, then he adds this severe warning, watch out for those dogs. Now this is not the most flattering way to describe someone, is it? If you see a sign on a gate or a door that says, beware of the dog, You know it's a universally recognised warning. It means be very careful or you will get harmed. And Paul is not talking here about literal dogs. He adds two other descriptions which make it clear that he's talking about people. And there it is in verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. It's intense. In the original language it's it's a threefold warning, watch out for those dogs, watch out for the evildoers, watch out for these mutilators of the flesh. So who on earth is he talking about? Now Paul was the great missionary church planter and theologian. He travelled the ancient world on three great missionary journeys, uh, preaching the gospel in, in strategic places and planting new churches from which other churches could be started. And what started happening very early on in Paul's ministry was he would go to a place, he would preach, usually starting in the synagogue, and then when he was thrown out he would preach somewhere else and a a community would gather of believers and he would stay long enough to, to give it some foundations and then appoint some leaders or leave another team member to appoint leaders and move on to the next place. And his ambition was to go right around as far as Spain and Albania. But what started happening very early on was that other Jewish Christians would follow along after Paul. And when he left town, they would come in to the churches and they would begin teaching their own message. And we don't have names for these teachers, uh, but we know that they were very skillful, very credible, very convincing, and they could lead astray Whole communities of Christians. They would come in and teach that the non-Jews, the Gentiles, weren't the proper people of God yet. They would say, it's good that you've got Jesus and that you believe in the Messiah. That's good, but you need something more. You also need to keep the Old Testament law effectively to become Jewish. They were saying, in effect, you're kind of halfway there, but you now need to go the whole way to become the people of God. And one key marker of the Old Testament people of God was that every male was circumcised. And so it was a, a, a huge identity marker for the Jewish people in the ancient world. And so they insisted on on new converts being circumcised and also things like keeping food laws and other ritual practices from the Old Testament. Now, these teachers looked like biblical Christians on the surface, and they said they believed in Jesus, but they were actually undermining the very foundations of the gospel itself. They were effectively saying, you got Jesus, great, but you need Jesus plus. You need more, because the gospel message on its own is not enough. And they were ruining whole households, and whole churches and if you want to see uh, how paul's worked this through earlier on in his career a few years before read the letter to the galatians the churches in galatia which was uh, part of uh, what we know of as turkey had many of them had been turned and been taken right off course from the gospel and it was ruinous now the same thing has not happened in philippi yet most scholars think because there's not a big section dealing with it. But there is a warning because Paul knows that these rogue teachers are out there somewhere and they tend to travel around finding churches and trying to introduce their own message. And so he wants to prepare these young Christians for it. And so he says, this is a safeguard for you. It's a bit like, you know, wash your hands, sanitize and put on a face mask to safeguard you against COVID. And he gives them this threefold description, which is actually really ironic. First of all, he says, their dogs now a dog in the ancient world was often a wild feral filthy creature not a sort of pet dog like we we tend to think of dogs more maybe more like for us a fox something that's pretty dangerous and and you wouldn't want it in the house but dogs was actually a really insulting way that the orthodox jews would sometimes describe the gentiles because the gentiles were unclean they didn't keep the law of god they didn't keep the food laws So Jews, law observing Jews wouldn't eat with Gentiles, wouldn't sit down and have table fellowship with them, would never have them in their house. And if you've got um, strict uh, Muslim friends, you will know that for for Muslims too, it's a difficulty to share uh, food, share food with those who aren't Islamic because they're worried about uncleanness. And so they would call the Gentiles the dogs. Now, what Paul says here is quite ironic. No, no, they're now the dogs. They're the ones who are outside, dangerously challenging the people of God. Secondly, they're evildoers. They're they're workers of things that are bad. And that's ironic because they thought they were the ones that were keeping the law. He says, no, no, what you're doing is actually undermining what God wants to do. And thirdly, and probably most shockingly, he describes them as mutilators, cutting people's flesh. Yet they are the ones that teach circumcision, which they say is from the Bible. Paul is really saying something so radical here to shock his readers out of any complacency. He says, in effect, now that Jesus has come, anything that tries to turn the clock back to the Old Testament law is anti-gospel. It ends up doing the very opposite of what it promises. It's the worst thing you could do to now insist that people have got to be circumcised to become the people of God. They are already the circumcision, he says, by virtue of being faith in Christ. So, if you try and turn the clock back and add extra rules and regulations to Jesus, you're actually just doing what all the other DIY religions in the world do. No longer is physical circumcision the mark of God's people. Now, heart circumcision is a deep change in the motivational center of a person. Now, the Old Testament itself had already taught this for those who were attentive to its message. Right back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses himself had said this to the people, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And what Paul's really doing here is saying that time has come where through the work of Jesus applied to a person by the Holy Spirit Our heart is changed so that we may obey God, love him with all our heart and soul and live. And so to underline this point, Paul now brings out his CV, his resume. And Paul has the most spectacular credentials for an Orthodox Jew. I mean, he could really boast about this. This guy is in a league of his own. Look what he says in verse four. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh... Um, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of Hebrews in regards to the law a Pharisee as for zeal persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law faultless he's showing him his credentials he was circumcised on the eighth day in effect he's saying I'm not a convert I i one of the true Israelites from the tribe of Benjamin this is a claim to racial purity Benjamin was one of the two tribes that had stayed loyal to King David a Hebrew of Hebrews it means he's culturally pure he's not been brought up in Greek culture he's not Hellenized he's been brought up to speak the Hebrew language as regards to the law he's a Pharisee this alludes to his high educational attainments With regard to zeal, he persecuted the church. In other words, he's a leader in his own movement. Righteousness, in terms of keeping the rules, he was faultless. All of this means Paul excelled. He was Oxbridge, Ivy League, aristocratic, wealthy, whatever the thing would be in our culture. Paul is showing us his CV and for the Jew it means he, he's, he's, he's right up there. He's in that top percentage of people with amazing credentials. He had this elite background. His parents had supplied him with impeccable credentials as a member of God's people. And he had added his own accomplishments and achievements by observing the law after the manner of the Pharisees, by studying, by devoting himself to so completely that his zeal led him to persecute the church and kill Christians. And now look what he says about all of it. Verse 3 and 4. We put no confidence in the flesh, although I have plenty of reasons to do so if I wanted to. We we put no confidence in the flesh. So, the thing we all have to watch out for, friends, is putting confidence in the flesh. That is our credentials, our background, our achievements. Our status, the things we put on our CV, our story of who we are. Anything, in fact, that we tend to be proud of or boast of is is putting confidence in the flesh. So let me ask you at this point, where do you tend to put confidence in the flesh? Where do you tend to do it? I asked a bunch of people at our church using WhatsApp, and they sent me back some really helpful messages. Here are some things people said. Confidence in our nationality, our cultural background, or where we're from, a certain city or town. Academic accomplishments, which university you went to, your degree. For those who are academics, their research outputs, the research grants they've been able to obtain, membership in prestigious bodies. Perhaps for some it's the family name, the family history. There's pride in that if you have a great name. Or, looking the other direction, pride in our children. Putting confidence in our children's accomplishments, their credentials, their success. Our work, being promoted, being recognised, having a good job. Being successful, being a respected professional, well paid, maybe being the star, the rising star at the organisation or the company. Achieving the middle class dream, the kind of home that other people envy, a status car and of course, good holidays. Do you know there's a very deep irony that even having church background and having a certain pedigree as a Christian can make you look down your nose at other people and can cause you to put confidence in the flesh. If you've been brought up with a strong moral code, you never did those things that pagans do, you know your Bible really well, it can be a source of confidence in the flesh. See, notice here how the flesh takes so many forms. And the problem is, friends, we tend to trust in it. And then it destroys us. Because if we live by our merits, we are always insecure. We're we're insecure that we're not really good enough and we feel like an imposter. If we live by our merits, we're always conscious that there's someone out there who's better than me. Am I good enough? If we live by our merits, there is one person whose standards we often fail to reach and who shuts us out and that person is you you're always judging yourself because you don't quite make the grade and you know it because if you live by your merits and then you fail to measure up if you do that you hate yourself you curse yourself you despise yourself you are wretched live by your merits put confidence in those things and you will die every day Live by the merits of Jesus Christ and you will live. And see the issue here? It's very deep. Live by your own merits and you're going to die a little bit every day. Live by the merits of Jesus Christ and you shall live. So if you put confidence in the flesh and you don't watch out for this false confidence that comes from your own achievements, you will lose your joy. We know what that feels like, don't we? We know what it feels like to lose our joy because of some accomplishment or something that we didn't look that good. And so therefore we must do something every day, maybe every hour, maybe more often than that. And that is my second point. We must consider the great exchange. We must consider the great exchange that Jesus Christ has given us his life, his love, his righteousness. Verses 7 to 8 go on back to the passage if you want to look, look back with me. To make another incredible statement, Paul says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. This He says, you know that whole CV I just told you about? I actually consider it a loss. I just tear it up, put it through the shredder. And he uses an image drawn from the world of accounting. Now, we all are used to probably accounting software, spreadsheets, maybe you've used Excel at some time or other, or or Numbers or some other accounting package. But back in the day, and it wasn't all that long ago, people would write debits and credits in a big book. And this went on for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. My father worked in Manchester City Centre back in the 1950s at what was called the National Bank. And he tells us about a huge book, a huge high-quality book that was, was there that had the accounts of the customers written in, in ink, in beautiful copperplate handwriting. And he had to learn how to write in the, the ledger, it was called. And so you could open the page and see on one column... The debits, the things that had been withdrawn, and another column, the credits, the things that the money that had been paid in. And you could add up the debits and credits, and this is what people had to do literally add them up and and subtract and add. And at the bottom of the page, you'd have the total, what was left either debit or credit. Are you in, in the black with some money, or in the red and in debt? And Paul has in his credit column all those things we just talked about, you know, his background, his achievements, his accomplishments. He's the top of the pile. He's in a league of his own. And he takes a big pen out, a big Sharpie, and he goes, you see that column? Strikes it through. I consider it a loss. I consider it a loss. Move it all across to the debit side. It's absolutely worthless to me. It's it's worse than worthless. It's a debit. It's it's, It's so... Um, unnecessary, unimportant now. I don't even regard it as anything. And then he goes further. And I'm going to have to apologize for the language here for a moment because Paul uses a word here that's only used one time in the Bible. And it's it's a little bit strong. And our translators have usually protected us from it. Uh, But I'm going to tell you what it says in the dictionary. He says in verse 8, I consider them crap. That's what it says in the dictionary. It's the only time Paul uses this word or anyone else, and it's written to make us sit up and listen. And what he's saying is, friends, listen, compared to knowing Jesus, all your other credentials and achievements are a load of crap. So let's consider the great exchange where all our achievements and accomplishments and background are taken away and something far better is given. Verse nine says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This is the greatest gift that you and I could ever get. The thing I most need, says Paul, is this. Not my own track record, not my own CV, but the track record, the CV of Jesus Christ. And the Christian is someone who knows that God has given you the perfect CV. The beauty of the Gospel is this, a holy God who's completely without fault finds us, sees us, discovers us in Christ. So God can look at you and find you utterly beautiful. He thinks you're gorgeous. You are a thing of beauty in Christ. The eyes of the most important person in the universe gaze upon you with love and acceptance because you are united with Christ. Jesus We know, lived the life that we should have lived, life of perfection, and died the death that we deserved, the death for sins. And God now embraces you and welcomes you into his family. He adopts you, he gives you the adoption of sonship. All of the rights and privileges of a son in the ancient world are given to you, Christian. So, Paul's basically saying here stop trying to live through your own merits. Be they religious or non religious. So let me finish this sermon by asking what is it for you? Where does this bite for you? Where is this going to connect and change your heart and mind and soul in the weeks ahead? Where are you tempted to put confidence in the flesh? And where do you need to know, I have Christ, I've gained Christ. I'm found in him. I don't have a righteousness of my own. I have the one from him. And that frees me to live and suffer for him. I'll tell you about one man who's written very honestly about this. Uh, he confessed that he had, without realising it, he'd, he'd found his his merit. He'd found his righteousness in his job, in his career. And he was offered his dream, the dream job in the dream city, And he grabbed it with both hands and moved his entire family there to this wonderful city and in this wonderful opportunity and worked. And he thought his whole future was going to be there. And actually within a short time, a couple of years, strategy changed, situations changed. Uh, They had to move from four workers down to three and he was the one that lost his job. But he confessed later that it revealed a heart that in some ways was not right before God. He wrote, just before my resignation, I had an emotional meltdown that lasted more than three months. I wasn't merely disappointed, which would have been legitimate. I was devastated. I wasn't merely upset, which would have been legitimate. I was crushed. I couldn't sleep at night. I lost my appetite and with it 20 to 30 pounds. I was anxious and depressed. Now listen to what he said next. Had I truly been open-handed toward God with all my dreams and hopes and ambitions, had I truly believed that the the writing of my story belonged to God and not to me, then the thought of walking away from my dream job, although deeply disappointing, would not have wrecked me to the degree that it did. How honest is that? Because let's be honest, we all want to be someone, not just anyone, we all want our lives to matter, we want to be admired, we'd like to succeed, we want to be good at something, we want to be liked, we don't want to be bullied, excluded, perhaps if we're really honest we secretly like to be exceptional, nobody starts out with a life ambition to be average, what do you tend to daydream about? So, friends, where are you tempted today to put confidence in the flesh? Let me just run a diagnostic tool past us. What's the thing that really gets to you when it's shaken? When this thing in your life gets challenged, uh, is revealed to be insecure, you, you, you feel very, very undermined and worried. That thing that if you lost it, you would be wrecked you would lose sleep, you would lose your appetite, all the rest of it. Now that's a key. If you can think of something like that, that it's too important, that it may be a false foundation. So the next time you're really cast down and you start to feel panicked and anxious and depressed and discouraged, let me encourage you, don't just beg God to get you out of it. Ask him to show you What is it that I have promoted to being my righteousness? And ask him to remind your heart of the great exchange that took place at the cross of Christ. Paul can say, these things, seriously, they have no control over me anymore. I have the merits of Christ. I'm accepted by the beloved and it's like a bulletproof vest. Let the writing of your story belong to God. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we're humbled before you, and yet we we stand in the sunshine. You know everything about us, the secrets of our hearts. You know the impurity of our motives. You know the bitterness and anger that we experience. You know, you know our past and our future. And you love us all the same in Christ. Forgive us that we, we play around with these false and foolish hopes and idols when the King of Heaven wants to love us and is by our side. Help us to grow in him, we pray. Amen.